You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number eight. Welcome, everybody. Today, we'll be talking about why it's not just business, it's personal with Ted Coignet. We'll be touching on a ton of topics, including the need for a strong, decisive leadership to create a common vision in our society, creating the future out of lessons from the past, and the need for ongoing key conversations to create long-term organizational change, and much, much more. In times of great change, we need great leaders, those willing to step up, to take responsibility, to create a vision, and inspire others to join them in fulfilling that vision. A key part of that is having conversations with yourself and those you lead. That's what this show is about. Better conversations for better leaders. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Ted Coignet. Ted started his own business in 2001, making $20 out of his living room in the first month. Four years later, it was worth $10 million. He is the author of several books, including Five Star Customer Service, Spoil Him Rotten, and A World Gone Social. He's also a serial business founder and three-time CEO and currently finds time to teach at the Entrepreneurship Innovation Lab at Lorenzo Walker Technical College. Welcome to the show, Ted. John, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And first of all, I just want to let you know that you are my social media hero. And it's not because you've been listed as a Forbes top 10 social media power influencer or an Inc. top 100 leadership expert, or that you have almost half a million followers on Twitter. But because the truth is, I just love your voice. I think you're so funny, witty, and you're not afraid to have a position. And I just want to start by asking how important is it? in today's social media world to number one, have a presence online, and number two, be authentic and and find that true voice that we all have inside. Well, John, thank you very much. That's that's really kind of you. Um, I would say if you are not interested in being on social media, then don't, because people who go on there out of duty to their career or something like that are horrible and everyone ignores them. Okay, Mm. so maybe. Uh, get one of your kids to tweet for you once in a while. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I know that's that's really, really against a lot of things I've uh, kind of spent the last 10 years doing, but it's just the way I feel. Um, but if you do want to go on social media, yeah, be yourself because you know what? There's enough canned stuff out in the world. We don't need any more. Uh, if you are yourself, people will either flock to you or tell you how horrible you are. If you're horrible, again, please get off social media. But if you find your audience, then you found your audience being yourself. And that's really easy to maintain. I love that. I love that. In in talking about your book, you know, this goes back a little bit, A World Gone Social. You shared how companies really must adapt to survive. That's that's part of the subtitle there. You mentioned the term nano corporation. Can you share a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I can. And it's really funny because um, I, I think we're going to get into the gig economy in a second. And it's just it breaks my heart that what I wrote about in 2015 has turned into what it is today. So what I was writing about was um, the, the idea with the nano corporation is that we can come together in small uh, groups and form a larger organization for a short time to work on a project and then go all, all about our ways. So, for instance, my um, 
my brother-in-law is a sound man. He does a lot of work out of New York, but he also travels the world. And whenever a director needs somebody to do sound, they'll give him a call and he'll hold up the boom and he'll edit it after they're done shooting and all that. He doesn't officially work for any of these directors. He does work with them. And that's the way that Hollywood has been working for over a hundred years now. Well, about a hundred years. They, um, they come together. There could be, you know, a studio with a few thousand employees, but there could be, um, you know, individual actors who are represented by their agents and they're completely independent. There could be, um, a, you know, CGI production group that that has 20 employees or something like that. They all come together to make a movie. One movie I just watched the other day, because it's coronation and we're watching a lot of movies these days. One movie I was watching said that, that the movie created 300,000 jobs to make this movie. Now, granted, it's not 300,000 permanent jobs. Those people made a movie and then they went off to make other movies. But the idea that we all need to work for one company for life and either we work for this company or we work for a different, you know, the competitor, that's really old fashioned. It just doesn't turn out to be the way that employers employ us anymore. So we need to be flexible in our careers if we can. So it's kind of like a company in and of itself. It, it's you come together around a common vision, and people are going to naturally come and go anyway. So you're just recognizing that uh, transient nature of of life, and it's also giving more opportunities for things to emerge in different ways. Right. So your career will be one thing, and you may be, uh, you know, a leadership coach, or you may be a human resources uh, professional, or a, a I don't know, a patent lawyer or something like that. Your career follows you around. But when you work on different projects with different companies, with different individuals, that is the gig part of it. So, um, for instance, where I, uh, where I teach, we work really hard on helping the students build portfolios. Rather than just, here's my resume, it's a piece of paper with a bunch of stuff listed on it. Here is the work that I have created. Check it out for yourself. And by employers being able to see the work that this person can actually do, then they feel more comfortable hiring them. And it's the same thing with the career. You can say, well, I worked on this project. I worked on that project. You can call this, this lady who employed me for six months and we did this project successfully. That's pretty much how a lot of us are working anyway. Uh, I don't feel it's as new as all that, although certainly it is very new to, to a big portion of the uh, workforce. Is this, and you mentioned the word gig, and, and is this the same as the gig economy or are they different? Uh, the, the gig economy makes me want to cry because what that is, is instead of being a taxi driver, now you're an Uber driver, but you used to have, uh, depending on the, the employer and the city and all that, you used to maybe have some um set pay and benefits and and rights and now you're an independent entrepreneur you're not an independent entrepreneur the entrepreneur is the guy who started uber or lyft mm. they're entrepreneur <laughs> you're a worker who gets paid when you work uh when i was in college i and also a few years besides that I waited tables and bartended, and I was not an independent employee. I, you know, worked for the the restaurant, the hotel, whatever. Um, that gave me some independence. And you know what we're doing with the gig economy is we're saying, "Hey, come work, and we'll pay you for the work, and then you go and you know go get yourself some more work later." That's in theory, that's wonderful. It's not working out well for literally tens of millions of people. 
it, it sounds quite different than than the nano corporation um in in because yeah. it, it seems very when i when i first heard that that term it seemed very prophetic about where we are with the organic nature of our society but you're saying there's actually mm-hmm. almost a little bit of an exploitation perhaps i don't know if you would use that word yeah yeah so what it is uh i think i've finally you know i've been thinking about this for years where did i go wrong and what i finally discovered is that it's um high skill high demand versus low skill and easy to swap out mm. so if you're somebody who drives that's not a high skill job i mean you know hopefully you're uh you know a five star uber driver right but <laughs> but that just requires you being friendly and not getting into an accident and delivering people where they ask you to deliver them uh that's not the high skilled job that enables something like a nano corporation type of career that's a that's a very low paid job and you're easy to swap out with somebody else who'll do that same job so i think it seems like it's it's much more tentative than developing that skills and being a value add with low replaceability because otherwise you're a cog in the machine without having that certainty that you used to have in in a more permanent position. Exactly. And you know, there are people who absolutely love working in the gig economy and I'm not about to say that those people are wrong. So for instance, when I had my language school, I had this guy who um I at first I hired him to be a full-time teacher and I paid my teachers a salary. Well, he came to me a few months later and he said, you know, I don't really want all these hours. What I, I love teaching, but I'm pursuing my art career and I need more time to make my art. And so for him, being a full-time employee with benefits and the responsibility of, you know, 40 hours a week, et cetera, that didn't work out for him. And there are people like that. There are definitely people like that. When I was in college, I did not want a full-time job. I wanted to be able to take a day off if I had to take a test or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a different animal entirely from when people have no choice but to take low-paying work where they can get it. Part of the difference is choice, flexibility, autonomy. And rather than, you know, fear the uncertainty that can happen when you're just limited to that gig economy, as we said. That's right. Okay. So with the high skilled nature that would go into a model where there's more than nano corporations out there, are there any Mm -hmm. downsides that you would see of the decentralization of work? I know one of the things you mentioned is the, the social aspect, introversion versus extroversion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, um, one of the one of the things is that if you are an extrovert, you have uh, an advantage in getting yourself more work. Um, although, you know, we'd like to think that our work speaks for itself. It doesn't. And we need to be out there, um, you know, making ourselves known. Um, there are, by the way, social media helps introverts act like extroverts, which is pretty cool. So there is that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> nice. Some of my best friends on social media are dyed-in-the-wool introverts, and they would rather not meet you uh, face-to-face, but they'd love talking to you, uh, you know, <laughs> several times a day on social media. So that's that's awesome. But um, yeah, what we're what we're talking about with uh, the flexibility that you want in your economy is really good. Um, you want to be able to hire people without worrying about you know what happens if this person doesn't work out. But the bad thing is. When um, there are times like today with mass unemployment, it's really easy to shed employees. And that doesn't really work out well for the employees. And it doesn't work out well for society as a whole, as we're seeing. Now, hopefully, this is a temporary thing. But um, whenever, you know, whenever the economy goes south, uh, the, the least skilled, least tenured employees are the first to go. And that's not good for them. 
No. And as we're seeing, there's a ripple effect everywhere that goes and, and hopefully things yeah. will recover quickly. And I know that you know, one of the topics that you speak is you speak on a variety of topics. You've had a, a very you know, experienced career with a lot of opportunities to different things. You identify one of the things you talk about is the future trends of business. Do you identify as a, a futurist of sorts? Yes, uh, I, I do. And I, I do that kind of like um, skeptical of the term because I know people who love to call themselves futurists and then they're just braggarts. Um, I, I really don't. I don't appreciate people who thump their own chest, but I do like seeing what's going on now and what some things are happening that are not widespread yet. I like looking for future trends and sometimes, you know, I'm just off. Um, but you know, it turns out it's really funny. Um, one of my kids, one of my children, uh, found an old video of mine that I did for IBM. I think it was back in uh, 2014, maybe. And, um, she said, Oh my God, Daddy! I, I watched this five-minute video that you did, and you you were talking about people working from home. You were talking about the gig economy, and um, that's kind of cool. I wasn't I wasn't uh, correct in all of the uh, you know prognostications I made. Uh, sometimes I'll say something is going to happen in ten years, and it's going to happen in fifty, uh, or sometimes it's not going to happen at all. It depends. You know, it's like reading tea leaves. But it is a lot of fun to see where the future is going. And it turns out not a lot of people have that um, talent. So it puts it puts it in demand. Well, you know, I mean, predicting the future is, is a very risky business. And, you know, Babe Ruth was yeah. a legend batting at 300. So it's, yeah. you're never going to get 100% on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and right now, we just don't have the data. We, we've never quite been through an ordeal like this. Where, do you, where is your gut instinct telling you, or the data perhaps? on where things are going to be six months from now or so? Well, yeah, that's a really, uh, that question makes my stomach hurt. Um, here's here's the God's honest truth is we all do not know. And uncertainty is the worst thing for um, psychology. It's the worst thing for uh, the economy. People are terrified when they're uncertain. Um for one thing, we don't know if we're, we don't even know right now how many people actually have this disease and, and how bad it is. So are 4% of people going to end up dying from this? 0.4%. We don't know because there's so many people who haven't been tested yet. Once we get on top of the testing, and so we actually know, you know, I, I'm all about the data. Show me what I'm facing, and then I can make decisions. And I think as a nation, what we're waiting for is, okay, how bad is this actually? We know that it's really bad in places where the, you know, the emergency room is swamped and they can't, you know, people are dying in the, in the um, hallways of the hospital before they even get treated. We know places like that are bad, but is this the kind of thing that is going to go away with the miracle cure, I hope, mm -hmm. in a, a couple of months? Are we going to come up with a vaccine in six months rather than the 18 months they're telling us? Are we, um, you know, are we going to move past this? And until people stop this worrying and they can judge for themselves exactly what it is that we are facing, we don't know. We, this is the most uncertain time that I have ever uh, experienced as an adult or in my childhood, too. I, I think we're all in the same boat there. I think you're right. I mean, that's what we're really individually and as organizations looking for, what is the data? It's becoming clear as we talk that I feel like you're consistently tracking 
the relationship between the organization as a whole, whatever form that's going to be, and the individual, because after all, the organization is made up of the individuals. Yeah. With the leaders that that you work with and and, and you deal with on a, on a regular basis, mm-hmm. what do you what are they thinking about right now? What's going through their mind? I think everybody is just shocked, that, and and we're waiting. It seems that we're all, you know, the the different complaints that you hear from people, and some of them are completely illegitimate, and some of them are, you know, why are you complaining about that? You have a, a roof over your head. But um, for the most part, I mean, this is a this is a real uh, psychological as well as economic and and um, health problem that we're facing because we don't know what's going on, and we're all waiting for someone to lead us out of this chaos that we are experiencing right now mm-hmm. and so far you know i mean andrew cuomo's doing a good job leading the state of new york but uh so far we don't have a a strong decisive leader who makes us feel comfortable who tells us you know things are going to be bad for a while but they're not going to be bad forever and this is our plan to get out of it and we will adjust our plan as we go we need someone like that to kind of put everybody at ease we, we also, it would be very nice if we had a, a plan that said, okay, until people stop infecting each other, we are not going to do this, this, and this. We can do a little bit more of this and this because the numbers are trending in our favor. That type of leadership also on a, on a national and an international scale would be very helpful to business leaders. Those business leaders would then be able to make comfortable decisions. I think one of the biggest problems that people are facing is they don't know what's going to happen. So individuals are are tightening their belts, not spending because they don't know if they're going to have money to to you know get by in a few months. And then how does a business plan when their customers are just not showing up at the you know at the website or the door? So part of the consumer behavior in in doing what we just said, constricting yeah. their their uh, spending habits because of the uncertainty. The right. antidote, if I'm hearing you correctly, is, okay, we don't know all the facts. Well, okay, let's look into that. Let's start communicating that openly, transparently, and, and create that vision so that we can start actually making some plans. Right, exactly, exactly. Even if we knew that things were going to be terrible. For instance, so so you take um, you know World War II, absolutely horrible, but everyone knew we were mobilizing the country. We're going to build some uh, you know weapons. We are going to... Uh, support our troops. We're going to lose some of the people that we love, but we are, this is our plan. And the the ability of people to be able to take action, even in little ways, like, you know, I, I read uh, an interesting tidbit. It said that the victory gardens that Americans um, planted weren't actually necessary. There was enough food that people didn't need to grow their own, but it allowed them to feel like they were doing something to give them some control. Mm-hmm. The people who weren't able to get in uniform and, and go fight overseas. And that's the type of thing that psychologically is priceless. That's one thing we're missing right now is is where can we direct our energy, especially as we're isolated, we're home, and and it feels like we're in a bubble. Having that focus, uh, Victory Garden sounds like a really, at least psychologically, productive thing that we could do right now. Right, yeah. Like, you know, how can I help? And uh, again and again, you hear the healthcare experts say, you know, the biggest help you can do is just stay home. And that's not, you know, it's important. It's very important. But it's not doing something. It's doing nothing. It's too bad.
with people who are staying home. And, you know, obviously some companies are doing fine. They're able to, you know, adapt and become home-based very quickly. Uh, some companies obviously struggling right now. What can people do to direct their energy? Do you have any thoughts on how we can stay productive and, and keep a more positive psychological mindset? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a couple of things. One is check in with the news only uh, occasionally rather than nonstop. That's hard and it takes a lot of self-discipline to do that. But um, getting wrapped up in the news will cause you to spiral into fear. That's one problem. Another problem is, or another, sorry, solution is um, even if you can't meet people uh, face-to-face, Zoom is much better than nothing um, or, you know, Skype or what have you. Um, and, um, you know, one thing that we're doing, if you're in a position to do this, when we go out and walk the dog, we stay far away from our neighbors, but there's our neighbor across the street. We're having a little conversation. That human touch is nice. Um, but don't beat yourself up if you're not able to self-improve on a frantic scale. Um, so I've heard a lot of people say, you know, this is a great time to be uh, improving your your skill set so that you're more employable, and more you know, useful or change your career or what have you. When the economy bounces back, absolutely do that. And that will give you a feeling of control. But also forgive yourself for not having the energy to pursue that nonstop. Because then we beat ourselves up and saying, I could be doing more, should be doing more. And that also can take us down that negative spiral that you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. We are going through a prolonged low-key, most of us low-key, trauma. And thank God it's it's a low-key trauma. Um, but we are, and we can't ignore it and we can't beat ourselves up because it's counterproductive. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, I have started writing again, which I hadn't been doing, uh, in years. I, (laughs) really (laughs) since I started teaching that allowed me to have the, um, you know, I need to express my thoughts somehow. And that gave me a way to express my thoughts. So, uh, so I've started writing again, which is nice. Um, that's one way that I can kind of, uh, improve myself during this time of, of pause. But I'm also watching a lot of TV. So um, you can't expect to be uh, as as busy as um, you are when there's no pandemic going on. The, the TV that you're watching, is it uh, productive or is it just like pure enjoyment? <laughs> we're, we're watching um, British uh, crime thrillers. I, I don't know why. But <laughs> <laughs> what what a great up. niche. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, who knew? That's cool. Yeah. So one of the things that really, if I may ask, caught my attention was your identification as an ethicist and a progressive capitalist. Can you talk more about what those terms mean to you? Yeah. So um, I studied philosophy in college. Uh, thinking I was going to get a PhD, so who cares what you study? That's the first. That's my first caveat there. <laughs> but I studied. What I found was that the the courses that focused on social and political philosophy, that you know, like what is just in a society, they absolutely riveted me. And um, and so that's been my really my life like, ever since I was a kid. Like you know, what is right? How do we know? How could we make things better? These questions have always absolutely fascinated me, and I find them, you know, worthy of, you know, there's some things we do with our brains that aren't as worthy as others. And I think it's a worthy pursuit. So what I find in working with leaders, and, you know, and I'm also training young leaders. I'm, I'm teaching 16 and 17-year-old kids how to start a business in their 
they're doing that. So awesome. I don't want to teach sociopaths. Um, I want my students to turn out, you know, with the, uh, the skills that they're going to have uh, as a result of being in my class. I want them to, to um, also be positive members of society. Um, so ethics is very important. And the idea that we separate, you know, that line, it's just business that, you know, became famous in the Godfather and you hear it all the time. Still, sure. It drives me crazy. It's, it's a gangster. Um, it's actually, uh, the accountant for, um, what's his name? Al Capone. This guy who they called Abby because he was so magical with numbers. He is the one who said, it's not personal. It's just business. I don't want my business led by somebody who thinks that way, who thinks that business has its own murky ethics. Doing the right thing is doing the right thing. And it turns out that that is a stronger, more sophisticated form of, um, of capitalism than the Milton Friedman, uh, Friedman and Rand's, um, I know I'm pronouncing your name wrong, by the way, I do that every <laughs> um, the uh, you know the whole libertarian leave me alone and let me um, make money and if you have to sell your kids into slavery cool more money for me that whole outlook is it's not just selfish and horrible it's also short sighted because when when all the members of the society have more money and they're able to you know there's no such thing as working for people who work are able to be middle class when that happens you have more customers. You have customers who can pay for your products. So capitalism works best when it has safety nets to protect people who, you know, uh, who need the help and ways back into society, um, retraining people rather than just throwing them away when they don't have the skills that you need anymore. That's a, it's not pie in the sky. It's actually better for the economy to be progressive and to um, not socialists at all, but that uh, is kind of against what I'm, what I'm for. But um, you know, my kids tease me that I teach capitalism class, but I do. Um, but progressive capitalism is more along the lines of what Adam Smith wrote about in 1776 in Wealth of Nations. It's that companies need to do the right thing so that the government will not um, will not uh, take over control of the companies. That's just bad governance. It's it's foolish. And there's a lot of people who never got past page one of the Wealth of Nations, and so they don't understand what capitalism is, and they call themselves capitalism. And the kids who are becoming, uh, you know, voters who are becoming uh, late teens, early 20s, this rising generation does not like capitalists. They've got a really bad reputation and socialism has a stronger reputation because these so-called capitalists have tarnished the, uh, the whole idea behind it. With the you know archetype of Wall Street and the concept you shared of it's just business, it seems like that there's a, a short-sightedness to it. And yeah, if it's just business, but there's no customers, you're you're not going to be successful in the long term. It's what is it? Cutting off your nose to spite your face. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the things I, I like to be painfully practical. So, for instance, um, you know Henry Ford's famous 100 years ago for more than that now for um, doubling the minimum wage for his factories from 250 a day to five dollars a day. He didn't do that because he was a nice guy. 
He did it because he couldn't keep people working in his incredibly boring factories. The assembly line took all the joy and creativity out of work. So in order to keep people, they had to pay them more. And they did. And that started a a middle class movement that allowed people to have money to buy his cars. It, It was a really, really virtuous circle. But it was not something that he did out of the kindness of his heart. You don't have to be a a pinko hippie in order to lead with good uh, business practices. So there's a lot of overlap there between what some might uh, view it as being generous out of the kindness of your heart to really looking at it. Hey, yeah, sure, I am taking care of them. But also that's going to benefit not only me because a rising tide raises all ships. Right. And one of the biggest problems that we have as society is that each individual business making decisions for itself. Yeah, maybe the most logical decision is to um, to pay workers not very well to, to pollute when you can get away with it. Things like this on an individual basis that may pay. However, as a society, we all suffer. for, it. And we don't need people who put their um, social conscience ahead of their company and destroy their company. That's not helpful. But what we do need is for uh, society to be one where we applaud people who do the right thing. We shun people who do the wrong thing. And those business leaders, the peers of the people who do the wrong thing, need to be the ones who are shunning them. The peers of those who are doing the right thing need to hold their these good examples up and say, you know what, we need more people like them. Now, when you get to the, the company level, when you are hiring, you want the most talented staff you can get. And one way to get talented staff is to create a company that people are proud to work for. It's a company where people um, are also... You know, they're, they're proud of the social mission. They're proud of the fact that your company does not pollute or does pay, uh, pay um, a fair wage, things like this. Um, you'll attract higher quality workers and you'll keep them over time. And right now, sure, our economy is horrible um, suddenly and um, people will scramble for any job they can get. But first of all, do you want somebody who's just taking a job because it's it's a job? Maybe, maybe this week that helps you. But this month, this year, that's probably not going to be beneficial for your company. And the other thing is, do you, um, when the economy gets good and people can move around again, do you want them to move away from your company? No, you want them to. You, this is uh, something that Richard Branson said that I just love. Train your employees so that they can leave. Treat them so well that they'll never want to leave. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. And that, that is enlightened interest, by the way. That is that is doing the right thing. And by the way, it has positive uh, selfish consequences. Positive selfish consequences. <laughs> That's how it's tied up. Does that sound horrible? But um, maybe I phrased it wrong. But um, they, it does um, benefit you to do the right thing. Oh, I don't think you phrased it wrong at all. I think it's it's just expanding your sense of self from me to a we, and it doesn't take that much because what's good for we is also good for me. Exactly. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, and this relates, I think, on a behavioral perspective, because you talked about you know what's right, and we kind of as a society, based on our, our values perspective, determine what's right. And one of your tweets that you shared a little bit ago, we said this relates to obviously the coronavirus and masks. 
He said, if, if the boss is serious about masks, gloves and distancing, et cetera, it'll happen. If not, it won't. If the boss scorns masks and things like that, then workers will go along even if they don't necessarily agree with it. Because we're social animals, we have a fear of unemployment. So as a result, the boss must lead. So what would you say, if you have any thoughts or advice for someone who is working in an environment where uh, the boss is not leading or, or they're scorning masks and, and not looking at the data? I have a really happy follow-up to that very um, tweet that I sent out the other day. So my computer broke down. I needed to um, get a new one in a hurry. Uh, so I went to a workplace to get a new computer. And while I was there, I, I'm not going to, you know, naming names is not, um, I, sure. I, I will do my best to only call out the good, not the bad, but <laughs> uh, by name, but um, people weren't wearing masks. It was horrible, it, like just horrific to me. So I, I go into this place and I'm the only one with a mask on. And then when I mentioned it, they're like, oh yeah, no one's wearing a mask, you're right. Like, okay, good. I'm glad we established that I'm correct. <laughs> you know, that's not my point. But anyway. So I, I talked to somebody about that. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, uh, nobody else is wearing masks. And if I do, I'm going to feel kind of weird. So that's why when I left, I was like, okay, this is, this is exactly how people work. You're afraid. We just, we need to belong. That's what humans are. We're like sheepdogs. You know, we need to be part of a pack, whatever the pact is we do. So um, especially if you're low on the totem pole, you're not going to do something that has people making fun of you or, you know, you're afraid are they going to, are they going to, cut me when there's a job that has to be cut because I'm the weirdo who wears the mask. Well, he sent me an email from their HR um, that said, because of, you know, coronavirus and people being close to each other at work, you must wear a mask. There's no choice. So I just got that email today. Wow. Um, this person shared the, the follow-up to that story. And that is the leader, somebody clearly way up the ladder and probably in a different location, got wind of this problem. And said, whoa, 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 we can't do that, you know, because on top of anything else, you don't want your whole workplace closed down because everybody's got COVID, right? Sure. So um, they um, they sent this out. And now it's not that, okay, I'm choosing to wear a mask because other people are choosing to wear a mask. No. If you go to work, you wear a mask. If you take your mask off, your boss will, you know, you would imagine, uh, send you home. That is the type of place, you know, sometimes we need permission to do what is best for us and what we would like to do, but we don't feel comfortable with. Wearing a mask in Western society is still kind of weird. It's just become normal in the last couple of weeks. Um, so any encouragement from up top that can make that more normal is really, really important encouragement. So it has to be really reinforced um, conceptually Top down and and also behaviorally at that level too. Otherwise, like you said, the person who's got low status, low man on the totem pole, they're not going to affect the change within because they're going to be an outsider, too much pressure, and we're social animals. That's right. And and you know, even people who are very very high up in an organization still are afraid of being judged by their peers and by the few or the one person above them in the totem pole. We all have somebody that we feel the need to, you know, impress or don't want to cross. So it's not just the the frontline workers who are 
um, under the stress. It's also the people in the middle, and they often don't get a lot of credit for, you know, being under this type of pressure. So I think acknowledging that pressure and and actually having conversation about it is really only where we're going to change. Just like you said, rewarding ethical behavior and shunning behavior that doesn't fit for the whole interest of society. Exactly, and your you know your um, whole uh, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm losing my words all of a sudden. Your your podcast, your your practice about um, key conversations. That is a key conversation that can carry on for so much longer than the actual, you know, pandemic emergency. Because imagine you're a worker and your boss comes in and says, "Okay, guys, listen up. We haven't been wearing masks here. And my bad for not enforcing that, not wearing a mask myself. But we got the word from on high. We have to wear masks. And let's do it. Come on, please. That will stick with you, say, two years later. You're like, well, you know, what kind of a workplace do I work in? The economy is good again. And, uh, you know, my friend is telling me how great his job is over across town at this other employer. But you know what? I really just like it here. And I'm not even sure why, but it's just a, a supportive, ethical place to work. That's the type of thing where that key conversation two years before can have the the effect that you want in your workforce to to boost morale and keep people around. So true. And the reality is if you can have these types of key conversations now when it really matters and, and can be a life or death for some people, mm-hmm. then you can you can talk about any issue going forward and really have discussion and and progress towards a better place for everyone. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it, I think, you know, um, I have a, a sign in my room that says, uh, my classroom says business is psychology. Mm. And really, you know, that's all it is because sure, there's, there's money involved, there's machinery involved, stuff like that, but it's people interacting with other people. And the more we can look out for each other and set the right example for each other and lift each other up, the stronger our organization will be as a result. Well, you know, I think there's so much negative stuff out there. Like you said, limit your exposure to stay informed, but don't over invest in it. And, yeah. and, and I'm going to, I'm going to share your Twitter credentials afterwards as well, but cause there's, there's one more tweet I want to comment about that I think really made a difference in our household. And if, if people haven't heard it, I hope they can. And you said this, the coronavirus is going to make all our lives more difficult for a while, possibly much more difficult than it will be over. We have to face the first while remembering the second. So I, I want to thank you because this has been the mantra in our household for my wife and I, and and even for our seven-year-old son, which is, so thank you. I think it blends hope and resilience without minimizing the challenges that we're all facing. What can we do as individuals for not, not just you and I, but everyone here listening and everyone in your Twitter world, how can we share this type of message and help more people see the world this way? Well, it's really important, you know, and you mentioned your uh, seven-year-old son, my 15-year-old daughter, you know, two daughters, and then the 15-year-old was, is this ever going to end? And the poor baby had just started dating somebody when, oh, man. when this her first boyfriend. So as far as I know, she has not seen him in like six weeks. And um, I, I hope that's true. Because um, <laughs> um, his family isn't being as careful as we are. So anyway, um, you know, that whole this is never going to end thing is it's a terrifying prospect. But the fact is, it will end. 
you know, the the 1918 flu was much, much worse than this. Um, we'll see how how deadly this uh, pandemic is when we're when all is said and done. But it was, um, I think, 2.5 percent of the population overall died of the flu, if I'm not mistaken. And um, about a third of all the people in the United States and probably the world caught the flu. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are huge, huge numbers. Um, this isn't as bad as that. It's bad, but it's not as bad as that. The Black Death, when it went through Europe, killed about half of the people in Europe. Could you imagine if half of the people in your town died or half the people, you know, heaven forbid, in your family? Yeah. This isn't as bad as that. But it is bad. But those things passed. This will pass. And I think that's the hope we need to focus on. And in the meantime, you kind of mentioned let yourself off the hook. Yes, use this time to develop yourself and and develop skills and things like that. Is there anything that that you're doing right now, if you don't mind sharing, like to? I know you said you're you're obviously enjoying some some television, a little bit of the uh, British uh, crime dramas and things like that. Yeah. What are you doing to to kind of develop yourself and and stay sharp, like you like you always do? I'm sure. Okay, so uh, one thing that has really been beneficial to me is I've been thinking about writing a book, writing down thoughts about writing a book. You know, my what what is my next book going to be? It's been six years, um, and this uh, crisis that we're all going through has allowed me to sit back and say, you know what? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Write something that is going to last, something that is going to make you proud, not just make uh, you know a, a bestseller list or, you know, something like that. Hmm. So, um, that's why I, I added ethicist to my, my Twitter handle because, um, you know, I, I go and update that every so often. And, um, I just, I'm really going to write about what a more just and ethical society looks like in the framework of vibrant capitalism, because capitalism is my thing. That's what I teach my students. That's what, uh, I, you know, grew up believing in, but there are different ways to do it. And I want to make sure that I'm not just teaching people how to build a business. I want them to learn how to build a sustainably healthy business for all of society, as well as for everyone within the business. That that seems fair. That seems really just. And it seems like, yeah, the word sustainability, like you, you nailed it with that. Uh, well, of course, thank you for teaching the future entrepreneurs that, that go through that school and, and sharing the message that you do. Is there anything that you want to share with our listeners that we haven't already talked about? Keep an eye out for business for the rest of us. That's what I'm uh, writing. And I, if I can figure out the technology, I may create a podcast out of it. So uh, follow me on Twitter <laughs> and I'll keep you posted. Any other projects we should be aware of? What, what are you up to next? Well, it's, it's really funny, John. Um, in 2008, I, um, with a friend, uh, we were seeing a lot of business plans. So we, we started a, what was going to be an investment fund. And then, you know, of course the economy fell apart literally mm. a month later, um, Lehman Brothers uh, went bankrupt. So, uh, oops, bad timing. Same thing. Uh, we were going to put on an event called the Founders Invitational for, um, businesses to come and, and pitch kind of like a, a national science fair for, um, high school and college kids to pitch their businesses guess what happened? Coronavirus. Nobody's traveling. Nobody's going to events. Oh, no. So I have some, I have some amazing uh, 
foresight. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I think of starting a business, maybe you should talk to me. Call me. Yeah. Remind me. Remind me that's when the economy goes south. Um, but having said that, um, yeah, everything that uh, you know, I'm, I'm building a website to help support my my students who are building these phenomenal companies, and um, from there. We're going to have events. We'll have the podcast because that's a lot of fun. I'm going to have my students talk about their businesses. Um, oh, that'd be cool. Pretty much. And yeah, you, you, want to, you want to find out what I'm up to. Twitter is definitely the easiest way to do that. Ted, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate all the time you've spent with us today. Thanks a lot, John. To connect with Ted and stay up to date with his upcoming projects, including a business for the rest of us, follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Coignet. That's T-E-D-C-O-I-N-E. And you can find his books at Amazon. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for... If you like help finding and clarifying your vision and purpose visit www.keyconvo.com slash free and pick up a copy of my free ebook, Seven Reasons Why You Need a Big Why.